I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is your weekly briefing for the week ending July 10th. In this episode, the automotive industry began reintroducing electric vehicles more than 20 years ago. After all that time, electric cars still represent only a sliver of total auto sales. But that might change relatively soon. Auto industry expert Egil Jillison has reasons to believe that electric cars will be more cost-effective than vehicles based on internal combustion engines in as little as five years. That is significantly faster than most people expected. Also, the supply chain is something you never hear about unless something goes wrong. And now we're hearing about it a lot. The supply chain starts with basic materials, and that's one of the most difficult parts to manage. We'll talk about that in a moment. Some of the very first automobiles back in the late 1800s and early 1900s were electric-powered, but ever since, the internal combustion engine has been the dominant means of propulsion. The revival of electric cars began in the 1990s. This new generation of electric cars took two basic forms. One category can run on either gas or electricity. These are now commonly referred to as plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, or PHEVs. The other runs entirely on electricity. Those are battery electric vehicles, or BEVs. Today, the fervor for Tesla vehicles might make one think that electric vehicles have become more popular than they are. In 2019, only 2-3% of all new vehicles sold were electric, and that statistic depends on the source. Most long-term projections expect electric vehicles to gradually grow from today's market share of roughly 2.5% to perhaps as much as 45% or 50% by 2040, with most of the growth coming after 2030. Egil Juliusson has been analyzing the automotive industry for a long time. He recently wrote two-part series for EE Times presenting evidence that the EV market might move much faster than expected. He believes that within five years, electric vehicles are likely to meet several criteria that will make them fully competitive with those based on internal combustion engines. International editor Junko Yoshida called him up to talk about it. What are those criteria? The first one is the price of the battery EV needs to be competitive with the combustion engine vehicles. And that, and that's, we think, it's going to happen when, when the battery reach uh, $100 per kilowatt hour. And that's roughly five years from now. The second one is that you got to have lots of models that cover the, all the use cases that the customer have. So, uh, you know, uh, many of the, say, say VW, they need to have 20 or 30 models models that are battery EV, you know, from small cars to, to SUVs and, yeah, they, they, they you know, and say, say GM, they need to have it for, for, um, for their trucks. And so right. that's on the way. And we think, uh, you know, today there are relatively few models, but in five yep. years, there, there are quite a, a lot of models that are planned. And uh, well, we don't think the COVID uh, economy will, it might slow it down a little bit, but uh, there's going to be tremendous amount of models available. So that covers then the user needs. So, so there are many more people than have a product they want to buy. 
And then the third part is is the operational cost. And so and that actually the battery EV is already ahead of, of a combustion engine. So that's the, the equivalent price of fuel. So um, the, the electricity cost and then versus uh, gallons of gas and there it's going to range by region uh, and, and, and certainly by country. So in the U.S., it's about 50 to 70 percent uh, electricity equivalent to, to to gasoline. So there they're ahead already. Then it has to do with with the maintenance cost, since the battery is so much simpler. You know, there are maybe tens of, of moving parts versus literally thousands of moving parts and so uh, anything that's moving eventually wears out so so and there's there's basically no fuel uh, you know you know in terms of uh, you know uh, cooling uh, things and stuff like that so your know, brake fluids you, you name it there all of those yeah. uh, and and things uh, so so there are, there are fewer things that needs to be replaced and hence they're already uh, roughly Again, it's going to vary a little bit, 50 to 70 percent of, of um, uh, better uh, than, than what, uh, what uh, combustion engine vehicles are. Now, if you go to fuel cost in Europe, you know, now you're talking four to six times more expensive. And so there yeah, it's even, you know, bigger advantage for the for the um, battery. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the, the last one is really is the the. the uh, Refueling time, and that here we, the, the the battery EVs are not going to match the, the the combustion engine for a long time. But the fact that you essentially have your own, you you can have your own refueling station in your garage is is a major advantage. And so, mm. so so people that are then uh, so that that really means that people that have a garage are going to be the earlier people that are acquiring. Yeah. And so they're going to, and you know, yeah, there it takes, you know, 10, 12 hours if you have 115 volt type to, to recharge, mm-hmm. but you know, that's overnight. That's not, a, that not a problem. And so, so that may make up uh, the, the, the disadvantage of refueling uh, for a long time. Uh, but uh, eventually uh, you, you, you have to figure out how to put um, charging station where people tend to spend an hour or so because mm-hmm. when you have a the fast the, the high performance uh, re, uh, the battery charging you can pretty much get uh, 80% uh, of 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 it in in maybe today probably 30 to 40 minutes and so mm-hmm. that yeah it's still a lot more than the 5 minutes for, 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 but it's it, it's better so if you but if you're in a shopping center or or say at a, a restaurant area then you could you could charge it uh, you know then, then then you can get that done but the other point is that you don't aren't going to re you aren't going to charge it more than than you know once a week or so uh, you know unless you drive a lot if you just take the average uh, driving distance in the US it's about 13,500 miles or so that you drive per year you divide that out you know say 250 miles and you get 54 times but the range anxiety people have probably means they will charge more often but as the, as they learn how to do that you know it's uh, it, it, it's not going to be such a big problem overall but so so uh, so overall you know then then eventually all of this happened and and the battery ev then uh, does become the the, the, the major um, re- selling car uh, type of, of, of powertrain, but uh, again, there's uh, it, it'll take time. So.
Right. So, but you you are you are predicting that the battery EV will no longer be um, kind of you know novel item, but it is going to be the common thing probably within five years time. In, in the five years, it doesn't mean that that battery EV outsells combustion, and that means they're competitive at, at basically everything, and that's when the market really takes off because now. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the, really the beginning of uh, the taking takeoff. Right. Five years time, battery EV starts to make sense. Yes. It, yeah. At every aspect except the, the refueling time. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So I just want to go back to the battery cost thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wrote b- battery costs have dramatically declined already. Tell me how much it was before ten years ago, and how much it is now. Yeah. In 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 uh, 2010, it was it was a, essentially a thousand dollar per kilowatt hour, and so the tips I, I, I you know today. 60 kilowatt hour is sort of you got to have that to be competitive right. and so that you know you must that's sixty thousand dollars so, so so you know that that was not that that was ridiculous and of course at that time they didn't have that much battery so but then by 2019 it had dropped to 156 dollars and so and then the, the so the the benchmark it is hundred dollar per kilowatt hour. Then you multiply that by the sixty. Now you have six thousand dollars. And now you're pretty close to what the powertrain with the you know or the transmission all of that thing. What 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 that is for a, a typical car. And so that's what that's when when things are are are. are that's why they're saying yeah, hundred dollars. It's a magic it's, number. It's a magic it's number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. dollars per kilowatt. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting at Every um, high-tech uh, market item, I remember I used to write about LCD, when LCD becomes <laughs> mainstream, yeah. and that was like, I think, $100 per, um, you know, certain size of the screen, right? right? right yeah. There was always that much. So in this uh, EV case, so you're talking about the $100 per kilowatt per hour. Right, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's, we're, we're getting close to that. Yes. Very good. All right. So um, the uh, in terms of the uh, different uh, variety of EV models coming, are you actually hearing that from automakers? Are they uh, promising that? Yes, they, they are promising that. If if you uh, if you look at what uh, IHS Market have, they, they essentially track every model that are that are being produced and being sold, and they have they go to usually till about the uh, uh, 20, 31, 32 time frame. And so they, so I, you know, when I work, work there, I would look at those and yeah, so somebody like uh, VW, uh, and they said publicly too, they'll have well over 20 models by 2025. Uh, wow. And so uh, GM is sort of in the same range. So pretty much all the major automotive companies that are and, and they're all going towards battery EV because they, they do understand that now it's it's the long-term winner they may not have 20 but they're going to have 10 15 and and it's going to increase uh, over time and uh, if you go to Europe where where the uh, you know they're more they're more uh, they really want it much because they're much more into the to, to uh, to cutting down the uh, the CO two, CO two, yeah. yeah. So so Emission, there it, yeah. it's it's much higher. You know, Norway is already fifty percent is is battery EV already in sales, and but but of course, wow, yeah, really fifty yeah, percent over fifty percent, yeah. And but there, there's a separate reason for all of that, which might be worth a a different <laughs> column just writing another the, column. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean writing about 
the different perspective by country because it varies quite a lot and and what they're doing and so on so so that that might be worth another column so yeah all right let's uh let's <laughs> set that aside no that's a that's an intriguing thing i mean something like a battery ev you know this is not really just about technology it's about how society yes, embraces yes. new technology how society actually builds policy behind it right i mean it's uh it's 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 interesting all right, good. So now let's get back to the technology. One of the things that really you know got me excited when I'm reading your part two of your battery EV uh, story was this. You wrote about emerging technologies to improve battery EV, right? Specifically, you talked about wireless charging and supercapacitor coming up. Wireless charging, I kind of get that, but tell me about supercapacitor. What the hell is this? <laughs> it's, well, it, it's it's a large capacitor, that, and and, and uh, you, you basically the, the good news about capacitors, you can charge them really fast because you you just dump the the current in there, and all of a sudden it's there. So the idea that that it's possible, and the, I don't know if anybody is doing this, and it, it may be a you know a pie in the sky, but the idea is that. It, you could you would you would have a a, a a super capacitor as part of the battery system and you would then that would charge up really fast and and then that would then slowly then while you no longer hooked up then it would charge the, uh, the the battery uh, you know that, that's the idea and uh, so but but again whether that's going to happen or not that, that's unknown but that that's the idea so i i, I compared it to a, to a cache memory in, in the in the computer industry which is the, essentially the equivalent to that and that supercapacitor could also be between the charging station and the and the electricity network because there there's a problem of getting you, you got to pull a lot of, of current there too so, so having Stand by a, a supercapacitor with extra power there that you can then load into when the car is there. That that could could be done as well. But again, these these are these might be pie in the sky, but you but you never. <laughs> but it's an idea, it's an idea that's kind that, of floating that, uh, floating around that could help uh, the uh, charging uh, dilemma. And, and, right. and wireless charging—that's you know that that's pretty well established. You know the smartphones are doing that now, and you know many of the cars have that for the smartphones. So the uh, and uh, Qualcomm actually was was a was a major uh, in, investor in that. That but they they sold their business to Itricity, uh, you know, about a year ago, I think, maybe a little bit more. So uh, so so there are companies working on that, and and that's uh, the the wireless charging for cars are, are much more realistic, and. It's more convenient because you uh, you know you have to go plug stuff in. You just park in a certain space, and and there it, there it goes. Yeah, and also it has one one advantage. Um, the wireless charging can be more efficient than uh, than plug-in because you know it goes through all this uh, the power adapter and all this the, that and so that generates heat and so uh, anytime you have heat that means some of the electricity is is being wasted yeah so the operational cost once of of of, uh, of uh, wireless charging could be better than 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 plug-in uh, uh, charging. 
but again, that that's uh, but it, then the infrastructure to put in is more costly. That so that's the issue, and but I'm but I'm I'm pretty sure that say uh, the the robo taxis and you know most of those are going to be battery EVs over time. They're going to have their place where they use that because it's going to be more convenient and and uh, for them, yeah, for right. them, yeah. So yeah, yeah, wow. Great. So uh, let me come back to this um, super capacity <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm dwelling on it. Are you aware of any companies who mentioned that they're working on this? No, no I, I don't think so. But but there's an there's an old there's an old technology uh, maybe 15 years ago that yes. there, there, there was a company that actually tried to develop a um, a similar concept. It, it was a, a a spinning wheel that had the uh, uh, that had technology, and and they they got pretty far along, and then and then they abandoned it. So which would be a sort of a a similar technology. So you know you spin a wheel and it has a lot of energy, and then you you you, you know that drives the car. So so it's not totally unheard of to having the concept of this. So supercapacity in some ways would be simpler, you know. Um, but again, uh, yeah, the, yeah I, I didn't spend enough uh, time to, to, to go into that. It's just, I thought it was so <laughs> intriguing enough to mention. <laughs> so. Exactly. No, the pie in the sky story, always welcome. All right. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Gil. It was fun talking to you as usual. Okay. Thank you. Juliuson estimates that once battery EVs become competitive with traditional cars, sales will slowly begin to grow. Recall that battery and hybrid vehicles had roughly a 2.5% market share in 2019. In his articles, Juliuson cites estimates that battery EVs, this is just battery EVs, will have a 13% market share by 2030. Add in hybrids, and that number jumps to 21%. We've got links to Juliuson's two-part series on the podcast webpage, or just do a web search for the headline, Battery EVs. Not if, but when and how fast. The U.S. trade war with China has profoundly affected the high-tech market. The electronics industry has been concerned primarily with the roles of chip manufacturers and the suppliers of equipment for making ICs because that's where the biggest disruptions in the supply chain are today. But those disruptions have given companies around the world a reason to re-examine their entire supply chains. And there's growing concern that China controls the market for nearly 35 precious minerals and metals that are necessary for manufacturing a very wide range of products. Everything from drill bits to semiconductors. But it's not clear precisely how concerned the global industry is about that. Recently, a supplier of tungsten conducted what appears to be the first survey of U.S. companies on their views of the part of the supply chain having to do with precious minerals and metals. Materials that topped the list of specific concerns include tungsten, indium, tantalum, barium, germanium, and phosphorus. Most of those are important in the manufacture of semiconductors and other electronic systems. Not all the respondents in the survey are sourcing their strategic materials from China, but among those that do, many of them rely heavily on China. A little over 10% get 40 to 50% of their strategic materials from China. 
Another 20% of respondents get between 30 and 40% of their strategic materials from China. Three quarters of the respondents say that supply chain disruptions are their biggest threats to their manufacturing business in the next 12 months. The company that conducted this survey is Almonte, a specialist in supplying tungsten. We spoke with the company's chairman and CEO, Louis Black. Can you tell us what uh, what the goal was with the survey and uh, what the results were? Well, I, I think there was a, a lot of um, there's a lot of information out there regarding um, uh, what the supply chain issues that, that are being faced by companies are looking like, but there was no mm-hmm. real sort of studies done on it. And so we've, we we're hoping that by starting off that process of really asking companies directly rather than than political leaders, we could get a much better sense. Of, of what the current thought process is within U.S. companies. And ultimately, um, it, it showed to us uh, what we, we sort of suspected, that further diversification is imperative um, and that there is an over-reliance, uh, especially on China, for products because ultimately there are very few other alternatives. Mm. So uh, the companies you spoke to, you were talking about uh, the the end customers of, of materials. Did they also include uh, any of the other suppliers or, or procurers of, of uh, rare materials? Essentially, these were all end users because ultimately okay. the end of any chain is, is where the answers are to be found. They'll drive what the rest of the chain looks like. Right, right. And you didn't ask just about tungsten. You asked about a, a multiplicity of, of different materials. Yes, yes, we did. Uh, and that was that was very important because, uh, mm-hmm. y- you know, I mean, not everyone uses tungsten, although many do, but it's to get an overall picture of, of what the situation was. Did you ask the, the, uh, the survey respondents what materials uh, they were using? Well, we, we asked them, obviously, what sector are you in? So there was a broad range mm-hmm. of, of, of industries. Uh, we also then asked them, you know, what are the strategic metals that you, you're most in need of? And mm-hmm. then we also asked them, where do you get these from? And, and so then you could start building a picture of, of their current supply chain. And then finally we asked them, um, what worries you? And so that this is it's given us a good overall picture uh, amongst you know over a hundred different companies uh, of the current mm. you know concerns that are with U.S. companies and, and from all over the United States. This was another question we asked: you know, Where in the United States are you? So, uh, can you characterize um, some of the different industries that uh, that were surveyed? Yes, I mean, I mean, you know, we spoke to uh, automotive maritime, oil and gas, machine tools and industrial, household goods, jewelry, electrical, um, manufacturing, both non-technology and technology, aerospace. This will give you an example. It was a very broad range because tungsten is used uh, extensively through most, if not all, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, a lot of our readers are in the electronics industry and the semiconductor industry. Um, did you uh, get any results that uh, that spoke directly to to that segment? Yes, yes, we we, we spoke to uh, electrical uh, end you know and and consumers in the electrical space, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. we found that obviously they are voracious consumers of tungsten because 
there's a, there's a, for instance, in South Korea, which is obviously the largest producer of semiconductors in the world, they actually consume more tungsten per person than anywhere else in the world because of the semiconductor business. So uh, tungsten is, a, is an absolutely essential ingredient in the production of semiconductors. Now, I understand that some of the, the alternate suppliers include Mexico, uh, some of the other Asian countries, Vietnam, I think was mentioned. Um, is the is it an issue of whether the materials exist elsewhere or is it uh, an issue of the infrastructure to extract those materials? Well, I mean... At Almonte, we we have a, our mandate is that we'll only operate in, in safe jurisdictions. With, with, when we say safe, we mean with legal systems. So they're normally, mm. well, they're all allied with the United States. Um, I think that the, the biggest uh, problem that uh, a lot of countries face is, is the knowledge, the knowledge of how to extract tungsten. It, it's very technical. Um, mm. It has been during the, the 80s and 90s and into the 21st century, um, low-cost countries have had, obviously, a huge advantage, even though currently they're not so low-cost anymore. But it, it's almost extinguished all the knowledge in the West. And, and that's really been the, the main problem. In terms of infrastructure, um, uh, you know, a mine you know, requires power, water, and a road to, to get in and out. So, so they can apply to that. But it's about stability of supply. So... Um, you know, if you have a contract, does it mean anything? Can it be enforced? Um, are there often disputes? Is it transparent so they're not conflict material? I mean, there's a very broad spectrum now that includes conflict material. So there's lots of those questions, uh, unfortunately, apply to many of the current sources that you can acquire from. Well, this is consistent with what I've heard about um, the supply chain uh, whether you're talking about uh, a raw material or a finished good, if you want to, um, if you want to uh, repatriate a capability, one of the biggest barriers is just the knowledge base. It, uh, do you know how to do what you intend to do? No, it, and often those skills are lost, right? Yes, I mean absolutely. Yeah. If there's if there's no industry for them to exist in, then people retire and they. They, they move on. So uh, what are the um, what are the courses of action or remedies that uh, that are that are options for these companies as they look for for alternative suppliers? Well, I think I mean, that, that, you know, there's one school of uh, thought that says that governments should be more actively involved. I, I don't subscribe to that because traditionally governments perhaps don't make the best decisions in regard to, you know, such technical you know, projects. And a mine is a mm. very complex project. And there's many governments who have tried this approach and it has not worked. It's cost a lot of money. And ultimately, they've ended up with no more supply than they currently had. I think that government can encourage mm -hmm. customers to consume from more allied countries, you know, through various, you know, whether it be tax benefits, uh, simplification of the import-export process, um, preferred status. You know, there's a number of, of, of programs that could be incorporated. And the market itself then will ensure that only the best projects are developed, and they're developed in neighborhoods where 
you can function and where you know you can rely on that supply and it's transparent. So I think that that's really what I would expect to look to government to do. Encourage the end consumers to diversify their supply chain by offering them incentives to do so. And, and therefore that in turn through free market principles will encourage development. Excellent. Any other recommendations uh, that uh, uh, for, for a functional diversified supply chain? I think that, um, you know, you have to have a strategy. You either have two strategies. You either have the strategy where you hold a vast amount of in inventory to protect yourself from supply chain disruptions, or that you try and encourage multiple, diver multiple allies to develop um, a supply chain, you know, supply chain options for you. Um, and, and I think this ultimately means increasing the knowledge base, but you can't rely, you know, even we are the leaders in, in tungsten outside of China. But I say to all my customers, you know, don't go more than 30 or 40% of what you require from me. And even that in the long term, you should reduce it because it doesn't make, it's not good business to be so dependent. You have, it has to be a broader diversification. Very good. Anything that I uh, that I've neglected to ask about that's pertinent to the issue? No, no. I think you've you've covered it uh, very well. Well, great. I want to thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Brian. We should note that the actual supply of most precious metals and minerals has been flowing. Few shortages have been reported. The concerns are entirely tied up with uncertainty with the political situation and the awareness that that situation has created about relying too much on any one source. I want to thank my colleague Barb Jorgensen from EPS News for contributing to this segment. There are few journalists who know anywhere near as much as Barb does about the global supply chain. You can find her coverage at epsnews.com. But enough about the future. It's now time to dwell in the past. Just about every week, we like to celebrate the anniversaries of interesting events in technology history. And by technology, now imagine me making air quotes. I mean, anything sort of techy, sciencey, y mathy. Today, we're going to set our Wayback Machine to July 1st, 1646. That was the day Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz was born in Leipzig. Leibniz is renowned for developing differential and integral calculus pretty much at the exact same time as Sir Isaac Newton, but completely independently. The argument about who invented the calculus raged during their lifetimes, but Newton had more influential political backing, and the political fallout would dog Leibniz for the rest of his life. Despite that, Leibniz made significant contributions in the fields of philosophy, physics, psychology, computation, and more. He designed mining equipment, hydraulic presses, submarines, and a steam engine. Much is known about Leibniz's career, but we have only second-hand information about his first job out of college, which was as a secretary of a secret alchemical society in Nuremberg. Scholars are skeptical about some of the details of the single retrospective account of that period in Leibniz's life. But now that we've noted that, it's a great story, so we're going to repeat it anyways. It seems that Leibniz, 
already a notable genius, didn't know anything about alchemy or chemistry. And let's note that alchemy and chemistry would be pretty much the same thing for another hundred years or so until Antoine Lavoisier would come along. But that's a different story. Leibniz was keen to infiltrate this society to learn alchemical secrets. So he hatches a plot to ask for a job. The problem is he doesn't know anything about alchemy. So he hunts down some of the thickest texts on chemistry he can find and extracts some of the most obscure and convoluted language he can find in them. He then writes a letter to someone known to be one of the secret society's members, and he does a core dump of the impenetrable jargon he got from his books. The recipient of the letter reads this gobbledygook and decides, whoa, this Leibniz guy must be an alchemical adept already. And he gives Leibniz the job. Seriously, who hasn't lied on the resume? Now, I wanted to bring up Leibniz as much for Leibniz himself as also because of Leibniz Kex cookies. They were first made in 1886, 170 years after Leibniz died. They're named after Leibniz for no particular reason, and the only connection is that the company that makes them is based in Hanover, and Leibniz lived in Hanover for a while. Leibniz keks were originally just butter cookies, but the company subsequently introduced a version covered in chocolate. A. I like the cookies, and B. How many other mathematicians have cookies named after them? Take that, Newton. And no, Fig Newtons were not named after him. That's it for the weekly briefing for the week ending July 10th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and other multimedia. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.